Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of a Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host, Howard Sides. Today we're going to continue our study with the book of Revelation. We are introducing ourselves to chapter 17, where the destruction of the religious Babylon uh, takes place. So we're rehearsing, reviewing a lot of the history involved uh, biblically and historically uh, that sets up what is taking place here in chapter 17. So that's pretty much where we are. Now we have been in this quite a bit and, and obviously you know before we get to chapter 17 there's quite a bit of history that's taken place so it's a little bit uh, of a hefty volume to get through so that that's why we're taking so long and taking our time getting through this to make sure we get it all um, and what we're doing is connecting the religious organization that is here in 17 with Babylon uh, back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 that uh, Nimrod and his wife Samiramis set up and we're taking uh, doctrines and icons and items that are used in today's religious world not picking any particular religion out uh, because there are several different ones that use these items although one is more visual than the other and uh, looking at the uh, foundation in the beginning of them what you know where they came from and that sort of thing so we're going to start today um, with one that is distinctly uh, Roman Catholic, and that is the office of the Pope. Uh, is this something that started with the uh, Roman Catholic Church, or does it actually have its foundations, its actual beginnings, that can be traced back to this Babylon mystery religion? So, um, as far as the origin... And when we go back and look at the historical and biblical references to Nimrod, we know that Nimrod was not only the political leader, but he was also the religious leader as well. He was what would be called a priest king. And the way we know that is that when Saramis set up the Babylonian religion, Nimrod was worshipped as a god. And we know from the biblical record he was a king. He set up his kingdom. Only a king sets up his kingdom. But from the records of what we know uh, that Samiramis did with this Babylonian religion, she instigated or emplaced Nimrod as the sun god. And so he was to be worshipped not only as a priest uh, or as a king, but also as a priest. Now, following his reign, descended a line of priest kings, each as the head of the Babylonian mystery religion. This line continued down the line uh, to a king uh, that we know of in the Bible. It's recorded, the events are recorded in the Bible. And there's a celebration uh, that's recorded that this king carried on or, or was doing uh, when a significant event in the Bible takes place. And it's found in Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And we read there, it says, Belshazzar, and if you don't know who Belshazzar was, he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or could have actually been the grandson. Uh, I'll tell you what, let's just go flip back over there. I think I've got it written in there, just so we make sure we got our facts right. So we know Nebuchadnezzar was the king down through the first four chapters. Uh well, actually, I don't have it written down, but I know he was either the son or the grandson, okay? He, he was definitely a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. So here we are, Belshazzar is the king. And in chapter 5, at the very beginning, it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, well there you go. Answers the question. 
which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, uh, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. All right, now what's going on? Well, we know at this point, by this point in time, that Babylon had gone in and ransacked Jerusalem, took over Jerusalem, uh, had taken uh, the Hebrew boys, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, who were sons of the princes, the leadership of Jerusalem, and shipped them, or carried them, transported them, however you say it, back to the city of Babylon. And the point of that was to, first of all, they wanted to learn about their religion from them, learn about their culture from them, learn about their lifestyles from them, but they also wanted to teach them their ways. And the point here was that Babylon, A, would gain the knowledge of what the Jerusalem, uh, the Israelites were doing, uh, but at the, at the same time, they weren't interested to, to adopt their way of religion, but they wanted to take it and combine with their form of religion and to make it stronger, uh, to make it more adaptable to everyone so that it would be easier for the people of Israel to worship their gods. That, that was their point. And what had happened here was as part of taking over Jerusalem, they had ransacked the temple and taken all of the golden and silver vessels out of the temple and brought them back to Babylon. Now, it seems from these first few verses here uh, that these vessels were kept in a certain place. They weren't out used in daily life because otherwise Nebuchadnezzar uh, or Belshazzar wouldn't have uh, uh, ordered them to bring them forth. Okay, he had, he had to get, send somebody to go get them is what I'm getting at. And so we see that this is maybe a turning point in, in God's tolerance here. Verse 3. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives, his concubines, drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods, plural, of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now, obviously, this is a religious festival, okay? And not only are they worshiping one god, they're worshiping multiple gods. And the fact that it uses in that phrase gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone, they're not even worshiping just a group. They're worshiping all of them. Now, verse 5, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. This king, this king was so scared uh, that his knees were shaken. And the joints of his loins were loosed. I I did not actually uh, research that, but it, the language there would suggest that he was so scared he peed himself. Uh, that the joints of his loins, his loins, you know. Uh, so he, he did one or the other. Uh, the way I read it, uh, you might find a different answer for that. But wow. Okay, so as we look at these verses now, while on the surface this seems to be sort of a social party, he's got, you know, his whole cabinet and his wives and his girlfriends, all of them concubines are basically sex girlfriends, okay? Well, why else would you have them? Um, and his wives, multiple wives, out here uh, doing this. But in fact, it was a religious ceremony of the Babylonian mysteries being carried out. Now notice some of the points. Now in verse 4, uh, they were worshiping their various gods. We mentioned that, you know, about the, the gods of gold and silver and all that. Now, the queen was not present at first. The king sent for her after calling after calling for the vessels from the temple that were taken from the temple of Jerusalem. Now, this celebration was an attempt by Belshazzar to mix that which was holy with that which was heathenism. And it brought about divine judgment. Later on in this chapter, Daniel chapter 5, uh, verses 26 and 30 says, This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. 
And then in verse 30, in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. So you talk about getting right to the point. It didn't take long. <laughs> Same day. Now, today, there is a railroad uh, that runs from Baghdad to Basra, which passes by the site of Babylon. Now, at this point where it passes by the site of Babylon, Babylon, there is a sign hanging there by the side of the tracks written in English and Arabic that says, Babylon halt. Trains stop here to pick up passengers. Now, the passengers are tourists who come to see the site of Babylon. Obviously so. Uh, now, the city, while it may be in ruins, uh, the mystery religion still survives. And so people not only come to see the ruins of Babylon, uh, but the religious system is, is still in place. And so that, that's where we're getting at. Now, when Rome conquered the world, paganism had spread from Babylon into every nation across the world. Now, Rome was known for taking the various religions they encountered and integrating it with their own. And we see that example here in, in the beginning of Daniel. That's exactly what the Babylonians were doing. So the Romans didn't start this. They actually learned it from the Babylonians. And who else did the Babylonians learn it from? From their ancestors. Now, th this integration included the idea of a supreme pontiff, which began in 63 BC with the Caesars and was only briefly halted in 376 AD when Emperor Gratian stopped it, as he recognized the office as idolatrous and blasphemous. Uh, this is one of the few emperors that had a little bit of common sense. And this is the idea of keeping the state and the church separate. But it only lasted <laughs> about two years. Uh, it, as a matter of fact, it only took about two years to get it started up again as the Bishop of Rome, a guy by the name of Damasus, D-A-M-A-S-U-S, who now had reached political power and prestige, was elected into the position and adopted the title. Now, Damasus had been bishop for 12 years, having been elected into the position in 366 AD through the influence of the monks of Mount Carmel, a college of the Babylonian mystery religion originally founded by the priests of Jezebel. Then, in 378 A.D., the head of the Babylonian order became the ruler of the Roman church. Thus, Satan was able to unite the city of Rome and the city of Babylon into one religious system. Well, not the city of Rome, but the religion of Rome and the religion of Babylon into one religious system. Now, soon after this, the rites of Babylon began to be implemented in the Roman Catholic Church. Every single ritual icon, and symbol used or practiced by the Roman Catholic Church today has its very roots in this Babylonian mystery. And that's why we're doing this study, to look at the different things and where, where they originally uh, originated from and all of that, okay? All right, so the real, real question here was how to get the people to accept a person who was the head of their own church and the head of the pagan mysteries. Okay, they did have their own church, and this pagan mystery religion, it, it was a different idea at the time, so how do you integrate them? All right, the church leaders sought for similarities between the two religions. A few common points would allow them to merge the two into one, as most people of the time were not concerned with details. And, I mean, we live in that day and age today, do we not? Uh, they take the spoken word is fact. Uh, that's why the media outlets are having such a heyday in this day and age. People are no longer worried about the facts. They don't look for the details. They just take what is said and run with it. Uh, another point, the Supreme Pontiff of Paganism bore the Chaldean title of Peter, lowercase p-e-t-e-r, which means an interpreter of the mysteries. This gave opportunity to Christianize the office by associating the title with the apostle Peter to confuse the two. Now, to connect the two, it was necessary to teach that Peter had been in Rome, so tales about Peter being the first bishop of Rome began to be voiced. 
Alexander Hislop, in his book, The Two Babylons, on page 210, writes, and I quote, And so, to the blinded Christians of the apostasy, the Pope was the representative of Peter the Apostle, while to the initiated pagans, he was only the representative, representative of Peter, the interpreter of the well-known mysteries. So, therefore, is the confusion and yet the integration, not, not a bad move from their point. They knew people just weren't looking into researching it and finding out what the origins of this Peter thing was. All right. Another strange connection is in the fact that the Apostle Peter was known as Simon Peter. So, Rome not only had a Peter with a lowercase p, the Chaldean word for interpreter of the mysteries, but they also had a Simon, who was a religious leader in the first century. Now, this man we know from the book of Acts as Simon the sorcerer, who later went to Rome and established a counterfeit Christian religion there. And that's talked about in the book of Acts chapter 5, no, sorry, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 5, uh, down through 24. And we'll read that, just so in case you don't know who this guy is, you can uh, read it right here for yourself. Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 24. Now, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, remember, Samaria is north of Jerusalem, but spiritually they are below. So that's why he went down. Okay, that's not a in misrepresentation there. Verse 6, and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For the unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. Very active demon possession going on here. Why else would he use the word many? Uh, <clears throat> And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But, oh boy, don't you know, every time some God does something good, there's always this that happens, right? But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one to whom all uh, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest saying this man is the great power of god and to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries but when they believed philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of god and the name of jesus christ they were baptized both men and women then simon himself believed also and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Now, to keep this straight, Philip was the one doing the evangelizing there. And when Jerusalem heard about it, they sent Peter and John. Verse 15, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Okay, verse 18. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 20, But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. All right, so basically what's happening here is a great evangelist movement in Samaria. Philip has gone down to Samaria 
And the people responded very well. But I want you to notice that uh, verse 12, it talks about true salvation. But when they believed Philip preaching the things that uh, concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized. Now, there's a lot of religions that believe baptism is the act of salvation itself, okay? But, but let's look at what happens here. Verse 13, then Simon himself believed also. But this was not a heart, a, a heart belief. This was a head belief. He could see what was going on, and he wanted to be a part of it. And when he was baptized, so Simon was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. He was getting in on this thing to see how they how they were operating. Okay? Uh, and in 17, it says, then laid they their hands on it, and they received the Holy Ghost. Verse 18, and when Simon saw that, <laughs> he had not got received the Holy Ghost. You know why? Because he did not have that uh, true salvation of verse 12. He had the false salvation of verse 13. And he said, hey, uh, how about giving me this power? And Peter said unto him, hey, your money's going to perish with you. Peter's calling for what he really was, okay? So if the act of baptism alone is enough to save someone, how come Simon here is, is judged as, uh, and told in verse 22 to repent? Baptism is an outward expression of what has taken place on the inside, and that's all it is. It's a testimony. It, it's not a... a it's not a form of salvation at all, okay? So you see that, all right? So Simon never received the true faith, but he never stopped what he was doing. He went on, and that's where this Simon comes into the role of using his name along with Peter's first name, Simon Peter, um, and they further continued this deception. Now, while this sounds strange and ridiculous, you have to see the connection in their own account of the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 7, page 699, and the article is entitled, Imposters. <laughs> Imposters. They, that's what they call it themselves. And I quote, Justin Martyr and other early writers inform us that he, talking about Simon, afterwards went to Rome, worked miracles there by the power of demons, and received divine honors divine honors. Who from? Both in Rome and in his own country, Samaria. Though much extravagant legend afterwards gathered around the name uh, of this Simon, it seems nevertheless probable that there must be some foundation in fact for the account given by Justin and accepted by Eusebius. The historical Simon Magnus, no doubt, no doubt, founded some sort of religion as a counterfeit of Christianity in which he claimed to play a part uh, analogous, which means similar, to that of Christ. An imposter. And the very Catholic encyclopedia calls him an imposter. So, in review, what are we looking at? Uh, the Romans were masters at mixing other religious ideas with their own. All the popes announced that they are the Christ in office on earth. And, and we'll talk about that title a little bit later on. Uh, there was the manipulative teaching that Peter was in Rome, and history records that there was a Simon in Rome. So, it, is it not so hard to see that these ideas most likely influence later traditions? I, I, think, I think the facts are there to prove that. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about the Pope's wardrobe, some of the items that he carries or wears. Uh, one of those is uh, the tiara or the crown and the mitre. Now, first of all, the tiara and the crown. Uh, now, you can look up pictures of them because they're all vastly different uh, with, well, they're different in that they each one kind of designs their own. Now, some of them have used the one that's been been around for a while, but but when it when they when this idea first came out of having this crown, 
Uh, they all like to put their own spin on it. But they all held to the same shape. They all held to the same shape. So the crown is cone-shaped. And this cone shape was derived from an old Phoenician candle extinguisher. Now, the irony is that it was this unique shape, a candle extinguisher, which puts out what? It puts out the light of a candle, right? Psalms 119.105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And you remember the song we sang as a child, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah. Now, the shape of the crown here symbolizes extinguishing the light. Now, while Latin is recognized as the official language of the Roman Catholic Church for the direct purpose of hiding the truth from common man who didn't know Latin and thus had to take the Pope's word as law. If you don't know what the man's saying, uh, then when they the priest t tell you what he is saying, they, they pretty much had to take it as law. They, they, they had nothing to go back and research it on their own because they kept everything in the Roman uh, Catholic religion in Latin. Nothing was published in English. And, and if you don't think that's true, uh, I would urge you to go back and, and listen to my podcast on the history of the King James Bible and see just how hard they fought to keep the Bible out of the English language. Uh, I mean, down to murder and, and, and uh, other forms of sequestering to try and keep it coming out. Okay, now, the crown also contains three separate crowns. Uh, now, it's it's a cone shape, and then on the outside, uh, I've got a picture of one here. Um, it's got these two pieces of cloth that come out the back, but on the cone shape itself, there are three individual crowns, one at the base, one in the middle, which is a little bit smaller, and then one up near the top, which is even a little bit smaller. So, it's three crowns basically in one. Now, these three represent his role as first, father of kings, second, governor of the world, and third, vicar of Christ. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 tells us, let no man deceive you by any means, by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That's talking about the Antichrist there. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. All right? So there's the warning that there's going to be one, that, and it is talking about the uh, Antichrist. But look at these titles of the Pope, the title Vicar of Christ. It means substitute for Christ. Now, in Latin, this phrase is transcribed as Vicaius Thele Dei, if I'm pronouncing it right. I'll spell it out so you know what, I, what I'm talking about. It's V-I-C-A-I-U-S, Vicaius, and then Thele, F-I-L-I-I, -I, and then Dei. D-E-I. Now, each of these letters, with the exception of that letter E in, in day, contains a Roman numerical value. I mean, we still use Roman numerals today, <laughs> right? And when added up together, um, the result is astounding. Uh, Vicaius. V is five. Everybody recognizes that. I is one. C is 100. So U looks like the letter V, so it has the same numeric value. So for Vicaius, you've got the V is 5, the I is 1, the C is 100, the I again is 1, and the U is 5. When you add those up, you come up with 112. Okay? Uh, Philae, there is nothing for the letter F. I again is 1, L is 50. So for Philae, you've got I is 1, L is 50, I is 1, I is 1. That's 53. And then day. D is 500. E, there is no representation. I is 1. So 501 is 501. So you take 112 plus 50 plus 501, and it equals the number 
666. Now, numerology is a study of numbers, okay? And it's not simply a study of numbers, but it's the, the, represent, the numbers representing words. And sometimes uh, we can get carried away. You, you can, if you look hard enough, you will find numbers that fit just about any instance. I know I saw one just the other day. Uh, here we are in uh, March of 2002. So we know that uh, Russia has attacked Ukraine. Uh, it's been going on for a while. But if you take World War I, the day that World War I started, and you take the number of the day that it started, the number of the month it started, and the year, and add it up, and the same thing on World War II. You take the number, the day of the number, the day of the day, and the day of the year, and add it up, and then the day that Ukraine was invaded. The same way, it all comes up to the same number. Now, does that mean that Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine uh, is going to start World War III? I don't know that. I don't know that for a fact. Uh, it very well could be. Uh, look at all the nations that are getting involved right now. Um, it's it's on the brink, and it's not going to take very much at all uh, for other countries to get involved. It's it's just very close. Um, okay, now let's move on, move on to the mitre. Okay, the mitre uh, is a separate headdressing. Uh, which you pretty much see the Pope wear more so than the crown, okay? Uh, the mitre is what is worn in most ceremonial events. Uh, when you see that Sunday Easter Mass or whatever, when he comes out on that little balcony and gives the Easter message and that sort of thing, you'll see him wearing this mitre. Now, it is an odd-shaped hat, I mean, let's just face it. It's an odd-shaped hat. Whoever came up with the design of this thing, if you've ever thought about it, uh, must have drew, drawn inspiration from something. Well, that's very true. They actually did. If you Google a picture of the mitre and look at it, the top of the mitre is in the very distinct shape of a fish's open mouth. A fish's open mouth. And this is a direct link back to the Babylonian mystery cult of Dagon, the fish god. And you're like, well, what, you know, well, let's look, it's there. It's, it's if you pull up the pictures of some of the Babylonian uh, cults that were going on, and we'll get into it a little bit later on, but it showed them wearing a hat of the exact same shape with the body of the fish hanging out behind them. Now here they got rid of the body of the fish and just kept this, mitre as the, the the mouth of the fish on top of the head. This is not something that come out in the Roman Catholic uh, volumes of ideas or whatever you want to call it. Okay, the next one. Uh, how about the Pope's ring? Uh, the Pope's ring is, uh, it's called the Piscatory. The Piscatory or the Fisherman's ring. Uh Pisces is the Latin plural, again, for fish. Another connection to that Babylonian god of Dagon. Now, while on the surface, this is supposed to symbolize the Pope's connection with Peter, who was a fisherman, the real connection is to Dagon, the fish god. Now, traditionally, each Pope has a newly designed ring, while the ring for the former Pope is decimated by having a cross symbol chiseled into it and then it is crushed. Uh, this action is actually the opening scene in the 2009 movie entitled Demons and Angels, uh, starring Tom, Tom Hanks. Uh, if you watch that movie right at the very beginning, that's what they're doing. The Pope has died. The past Pope has died. And they're, they're destroying his ring there. And that shows you exactly what, what that's talking about. Now, Catholics hold the tradition of kissing the ring as a symbol of respect and reverence. Ancient history tells us that kissing a ring was a symbolic gesture of surrender, submission, or a pledge of allegiance. So the actions there, they just call it under a different name. Uh, another item, the keys. The keys. Now this is referred to as the keys of heaven. And the symbol of it, uh, if you look it up, you'll see it. It's got the Pope's crown at the top and then the keys underneath wrapped in 
uh, red cord and this sort of thing. But the symbol shows two keys, one gold and one silver, and they're tied together with a red cord. And this all represents something. Now, the gold key represents the key to heaven, while the silver key represents the key to earth. And where, where do they get that from? <laughs> well, Matthew 16, 19. Again, if you just pull one verse out and read it and take it and run with it, this is what you get. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, while keys symbolize the power to bind or loose as they unlock or lock a lock in a door, right? So that's easy to recognize there. Uh, the red key, uh, red key, red cord, sorry. The red cord symbolizes that the Pope, having these keys to heaven and earth, the gold and silver, has the power to control both realms. He can unlock things in heaven or lock them up in heaven, just like he can lock and unlock them on earth. Gold key, silver key. Now, for nearly a thousand years, the people of Rome believed in the mystic keys of the pagan god Janus and the goddess Cybele. Now, Janus and Cybele were thought of as the keepers of the doors and gates to eternity. In Mithraism, that's one of the main branches of the Babylonian mysteries, it was believed the sun god, who is Nimrod, carried two keys. When the emperor claimed the title of supreme pontiff and successor of the gods, the keys became symbols of his authority and power. Now, it was not until 431 AD that the Pope publicly made the claim that the keys he possessed were the keys of authority given by the apostle Peter. So, where did this idea come from? Again, Matthew 16, 19, when it says that. Now, however, when you read that verse, the keys Christ is talking about, and by the way, he gave to all of the disciples too, uh, these keys represented the gospel message whereby people could enter heaven. That is the lock. It's the gospel message. It's the salvation. <laughs> That's what unlocks heaven. Now, from this ideology springs forth the image common today of Peter as the gatekeeper at the pearly gates of heaven. We've heard, all heard those jokes. You know, somebody died and goes to heaven and there's Peter standing at the gate. Where'd that come from? It comes from this. And, and when you think about it, as they approach this gate and Peter's standing there, it becomes Peter's responsibility to determine who is worthy to be let in and who is not. There, there's nothing biblical at all behind that. There's no one guarding the gate, uh, especially Peter. And by that fact, who would die and go to heaven first if they're condemned to hell? Uh, they're not even going to get to see it. Now, Mithraism was so popular that at one time, it was almost the only faith of the entire Roman Empire. And, and that's a statement made by the Encyclopedia of Religions in Volume 2, page 545. Uh, the head priest was called the Pater Patrum, which means Father of Fathers. The Pope now bears this as one of his many titles, too. One of those three crowns was as Father of Fathers. Okay. Um, the staff that he usually carries. Now, this can take on different uh, shapes and meanings, too. I've got a couple of pictures of different ones. Uh, one here, uh, they still have Christ crucified on the cross. Never liked that image. Yes, he died on the cross, but he's still not hanging on that cross anymore. The tomb is empty, remember? But they want to keep bringing that up, that Christ is hanging on the cross. Uh, there's another one that shows uh, a simple staff by one of the uh, popes, I don't recognize who he is, I'm, I'm assuming he's an older pope, that has the symbol of a heart in the middle, and on each end, one side's white, one side's blue, but it has fish on them. Now, of course, they'll claim that's connecting to Peter, but, oh no, it goes further back than that. Now, this staff that he carries is called the papal ferula, F-E-R-U-L-A, ferula. Uh, it is a rob, uh, a rod, with a knob on top surmounted by a cross. Uh, it differs with varying time periods. Again, I've already said some of this. 
Uh, some contain a crucifix with three crossbars. Most usually contain one crossbar. Uh, it's crazy that I'm looking at this one picture of one uh, where he's standing there with his ferula. And on the tabletop is a very similar image with the cross on it, but it has the Star of David as well. It's crazy. Uh, okay, one style has a crossbar that was bent upwards while another has the crossbar bent downwards. Uh, the, the Many different shapes. One even boldly contained images of the fish on each end, which uh, I, I was describing that one for you just a second ago. Now, the symbolism uh, of the staff represents the Pope's power to mete out punishment and impose penances. Yeah, his power to forgive and the power to condemn. Uh, another item is called the pallium, the P-A-L-L-I-U-M, the pallium. Um, this is a narrow white band, which is about the width of, if you put three fingers together, it's about that wide, that hangs around the shoulders with two vertical bands, uh, one hanging down the front center and the other down the back center. So there's basically a piece that comes around the shoulders with one piece down the front and one piece down the back, okay? Uh, it is made of white wool, which is taken from two lambs which have been, quote, unquote, blessed in the Basilica of St. Agnes, which is located in Rome, obviously. Now, this iconic garment is given by the Pope to archbishops or other representatives as a symbol of delegated jurisdictional powers derived from the Pope. Now, the night before it is given, the pallium is laid on the supposed tomb of St. Peter to receive a special blessing. Again, quote, unquote. This pallium, however, was a garment in which the pagan clergy of Greece and Rome wore well before the Christian era. It was also laid across the altar of the most popular god or goddesses for an entire night for special powers by the Greeks as well. So this is not something unique to the Roman Catholic faith. This again was copied. All right, uh, the next item, St. Peter's Chair. St. Peter's Chair. Now, this is the chair claimed by the Roman Catholic Church in which Peter sat and ministered as the first pope at Rome. Well, we've already determined Peter was nowhere near Rome, so that's been disputed. Now, if you pull up a picture of it, it's it's a pretty rudimentary-looking chair. But on the front uh, of it, like where the legs bend down, the bottom of the front of the chair, it's enclosed, and there's these little gold plates. Uh, looks like uh, one, two, three, looks like eighteen of them. Yeah, eighteen of them. And the Catholic Encyclopedia explains these plates show fabulous animals of mythology as well as the fabled labors of Hercules. That's volume three, page 554, article, Chair of Peter. Why in the world would it depict animals of mythology? It doesn't go together. Hmm. Now, the same Catholic Encyclopedia tells us, and I quote, Gilgamesh whom mythology transformed into a Babylonian Hercules, would then be the person designated by the biblical Nimrod, end quote. Now, it is certainly strange that Nimrod would be compared to Hercules, and carvings of Hercules are on this very chair. Again, tying all this stuff together. A scientific commission was appointed by Pope Paul in July 1968, and found that no part of the chair is old enough to date from the days of Peter. Well, that information sure didn't get out in very big public circles, did it? <laughs> they were trying to prove that it was from that era, and they come out and said, no, no there's not even one single part of this chair from that's that old. Carbon dating and other tests indicate the chair is no older than the 9th century. Okay, so it is old, but not quite old enough. Now, in the four corners of the chair, there are four rings. 
and you see it in some of the older pictures. Some of the newer pictures, uh, they've kind of done away with it. I, I don't know if they use like they there's holes there and they screw these rings in or whatever, but but the chair has these four rings on it. Uh, now these rings are for carrying the chair in a religious procession. This act of carrying a person or an item in a religious procession dates back to Babylon. Images and carvings from the 15th century BC depict the Babylonian goddess, goddess Ishtar being carried in a great procession from Babylon to Egypt. Now, this religious procession was also practiced in Greece, Egypt, Ethiopia, Mexico, and many, many other countries. Isaiah 46, 6-7 through 7, even says, They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. So this action of carrying them to their place of prominence is something that's well before Roman Catholics thought of it. Uh, the next item is called the flabellum. Flabellum. F-L-A-B-E-L-L-U-M. If you look it up, you'll see pictures of a flabellum in ancient writings. And you'll also see it as part of the procession of hauling the Pope in his St. Peter's chair or other depicted chair by the cardinals on the poles to his throne. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, let's just not deny it. All right. Now, the flabellum, uh, in ancient Egypt, the priest king would be carried in a procession with the use of the flabellum, a large fan made of feathers is what it is. A flabellum is a large fan made of feathers. Uh, this flabellum would later be known as and would be referred to as the mystic fan of Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S. The mystic, does that give you a clue where it come from? Mystic fan of Bacchus. Uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica says, volume 22, page 81, article entitled Pope, and I quote, when going to solemn ceremonies, the Pope is carried on the Sedia, S-E-D-I-A, a portable chair of red velvet with a high back and escorted by two flabella of feathers. Now, Ralph Edward Woodrow, in his book, Babylon Mystery Religion, uh, sums it up by saying, quote, that the papal office was produced by a mixture of paganism and Christianity, there can be little doubt. The pallium, the fish head mitre, the Babylonish garments, the mystic keys, the title Pontifex Maximus were borrowed from paganism. All of these things and the fact that Christ never instituted the office of Pope in his church plainly show that the Pope is neither the vicar of Christ nor the successor of the apostle Peter. End quote. Now, all of this was clearly a mystery in John's day because the quote-unquote papal church had not yet fully developed, although the mystery of iniquity was already at work, it was already in place. Now, it is no longer a mystery today, for it is easy to identify the woman, the mystery, Babylon, the great. And so, we wrap up the uh, introduction part of chapter 17 and kind of see how there's just so much evidence of all of the all of this stuff from the Babylonian religion uh, never faded away. It may have a different name, it may be a different color, or maybe a different shape, but it all is still hanging around today. And and while the majority of it and an overwhelming part of it is used by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, we can't strictly say that it is the Roman Catholic Church alone that does it. There are other. Um, religions that are under the so-called Protestant title. Um, if you don't know what that means, Protestant basically means a breaking away. They protested. 
These are uh, religious practices that broke away from the Catholic faith. The Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, uh, uh, Presbyterians, they all broke away. They do not have their foundation in the true Christian faith. They broke away from the Catholic And if you look at the things we've talked about today, uh, in the past few podcasts of what are integrated into the Roman Catholic faith from the Babylonian mystery faith, the pagan faith, uh, many of those copied what they learned in the Roman Catholic faith and are still practiced today in their churches under a different name. Okay. All right, so uh, that does complete the introduction part. Um, what is that? Eight parts. Wow, that's a lot of history. But I told you it's, it's a lot to uh, go through. Uh, so with our next lesson, we'll actually get into the chapter and start breaking the verses down and discussing um, what it's talking about here. All right. So thank you once again for joining me today. And uh, I continue to urge you to um, remember to pray for me. Uh, pray for this podcast in in the in the uh, fact that uh, I'll say the things that God would have me to say. That as we study this, uh, it's truly a Bible study. Yes, we're using other references, such as historical references and things of that nature. But I strictly want to try and stick to what the Bible says as much as I possibly can, because that's what it is. The Bible teaches you about itself. Okay, some things need a little clarity, clarity, and so we kind of expound on other commentaries or what people think, but uh, as long as it fits with what the Bible says, we'll, we'll use that. Um, and uh, pray for uh, our local church, pray for each other, uh, and again, remember Ukraine and uh, Russia, uh, the people of Russia. You know, I'm not saying that they're all behind this by any means. So um, just some of the stories coming out of this thing, uh, they're truly horrible. And and it shames me to think that, uh, and I know there, there's other things going on in the background that we're not even made privy to of, of why this thing started, uh, their connection with biological weapons or labs being used there i know there's a bunch of stuff out there but the fact that the children are paying for this uh that's abhorrible uh that's abhorrent and the fact that the president of that country a country that has been invaded and the independent country that has been invaded he has to go out and beg the world to help him that's a shame on all of us whether he's right whether he's not uh for the people is what there needs to be a response for uh it's just beyond me. I mean, it just shows you the level of uh, cowardice that we've reached a as a universe, really. Um, nobody's willing to stick their head out there and help this guy. Why? Because they're kind of afraid of the Russians or what, you know, for whatever other reason it is. It it's a shame. It is really, truly a shame. Okay, so uh, let me just say again, thank you for joining me today. Um, God bless you, and I hope you have a great day.